everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today we are joined by Tanya LeBuick, who is super busy running multiple companies, and so we're very fortunate to have Tanya on our show. Welcome, Tanya. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on our humble podcast. How are you? I'm good. And thank you. This is quite an opportunity to talk about, you know, a pretty fantastic thing that happened uh, for me, certainly in my career and in my life. So yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm loving the fact that it's a bit warmer outside. And uh, I appreciate that very much. Well, you say it's a bit warmer. Where are you at the moment? I live and work in central Canada, so kind of smack bang in the middle of the country in a little town called Brandon. There's just around 50,000 people that live here. So that is where I am and have been for quite some time now. Wow, Brandon. And what province is Brandon in? Brandon is in one of the prairie provinces. So our province is called Manitoba. We call it the Key. It's shaped kind of like a key. It's got some interesting things, lots of lakes, lots of parks, not, uh, not a lot of people. <laughs> it sounds beautiful. What are you doing there in Manitoba? I, I own and operate three different businesses here. One is a consulting company called Labuick and co, which actually kind of birthed out of the 2002, uh, Salt Lake Olympics, where I did a bunch of different events and contracting and and things like that. And then a couple of years ago, I was working on some strategy stuff for two small startup businesses here in my hometown of Brandon. And through a set of circumstances, one of their partners left the business and they asked me if I would be interested in, in buying in and becoming a partner. So uh, I, I did that. So I now am uh, a partner in Two businesses here in town. One is a construction company, so a general contractor for construction called CW2 Construction and Design. And the other one is called Guardian Fencing Limited, and it is a fence. So temporary fence, residential fence, commercial fence, industrial fence, all those kinds of things. So I sit as their chief operating officer. So I run all of the operation sides of those businesses in conjunction with uh, my business partner. So it's good. It's busy. Um it's a delight because you get to build the team, right? You kind of, we've been doing that from the ground up and we have a, a very good solid team now in the office and we're building, you know, we have solid guys in the field too. So it's a really good experience actually. And is business doing okay during this COVID craziness that we're all experiencing? You know, we, we were deemed essential because we're in the construction industry. So we were very lucky to continue to work and we did have um, some sites that were, uh, renovation sites or things that really weren't open to the public anyway. So we were able to continue working and, and lucky for us, we were also able to maintain our office staff. We did have to lay off some of our crew and we just brought the last guy back last week. So pretty happy about that. Oh, that's great news. That's great news here in Utah. We're, we're a kind of a house divided. We, we have a lot of the rural counties that are in the green phase. They're pretty much open but here in Salt Lake, uh, we're still in, well, the city proper is in orange and the rest of the county is in yellow and we're having a spike and who knows, we might have to regress a little bit on our, on our phased reopening because, um, 
yeah, it's uh, it's accelerating. Hopefully, people will take it seriously and and don their masks and social distance and maintain pr- proper hygiene and and we can get it to calm back down a little bit. Interesting. See, where I live, there's in the pro in the entire province, there's just over 300 people who have COVID. So <laughs> that's how small we are. But uh, we've we've been successful in flattening the curve, and so it looks like everybody's going to be relatively back to work. They even had some graduations today, uh, with the distancing and things like that in place. But it was sure nice to see the kids out and yeah, doing some celebrating. Oh, that's awesome! That's fantastic news. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, you say 300 in the province. We had 444 today in the wow. state. Wow. So. Uh, that is a that is a spike, yeah. Yeah, well, we had six hundred something the other day, so it, it usually kind of goes on this weekly wave where it goes down on Sunday and then it starts accelerating as you get through the week. But anyway, huh. that's our that's our situation here. Crazy time to be alive for sure. Let's talk about. Uh, a wonderful time in both of our lives, the time of working for the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter Games. And let's start out by talking about what you were doing before you joined the Salt Lake Organizing Committee and how you found yourself in Salt Lake. Before I came to Salt Lake, I was just finishing my first Olympics in Sydney, Australia, um, where I was a look manager for the Sydney East Precinct. So I had six Olympic venues and three Paralympic venues, which is uh, a, a large amount of venues for one person. So I was just coming out of there and vacationing with a friend of mine. Uh, we were on the Cook Islands and we checked our email because of course we didn't have phones. We didn't have any of that stuff anymore because we were coming back to Canada. And there was an email asking if I was the Tanya LeBuick that worked in Sydney. And I just responded, yes. I went back to the beach. And so we had this conversation back and forth and it ended up that they wanted to call me for an interview. And that all kind of unfolded after uh, Christmas. And early in 2001, I arrived in Salt Lake, like everybody else that got relocated. And I think I stayed in um, Sugar House. I forget the name of the hotel, but yeah, I stayed there and kind of waited to find somewhere to live and figure out where I worked and all those kinds of things. So it happened relatively quickly. Um, and I was grateful. I was grateful for the opportunity for sure. All right. I gotta, I gotta unpack a couple of things there. Number one, how did you end up in Sydney? Well, Sydney is a great story. Actually, I ended up in Sydney through a bunch of different circumstances. So I started my event career in 1995. I started it right here in my hometown of Brandon, Manitoba, working for the 1997 Canada Summer Games. So we have a national uh, amateur sporting event that kind of mimics the Olympics and it alternates between summer and winter. And the summer ones were coming to my town. So I applied literally 10 times. <laughs> and got one interview and uh, placed second in the interview. And the reason I got the job was because I lived in Brandon and the person who placed first didn't, and their mandate was to hire local. Uh, So a stroke of luck, I would say, or maybe the hand of God, whatever you like. And so while I was working there, the gentleman from the Atlanta 1996 uh, Olympics came to talk to us and kind of give us a, um, a day in the life kind of perspective on what we were going to face and those kinds of things. And his name was Guy Lodge. And I just remember being completely awestruck by everything he was saying 
uh, about uh, the Olympics and, and all these kinds of things and telling us stories. And his job was a uh, project manager in the look of the games. So I, I just remember sitting there and I must have been, must have had some kind of crazy look on my face because he looked at me and he said, what do you want? And I just smiled and said, I want your job. And that's the job I had in Salt Lake. So what happened was uh, I met him and then he finished Atlanta and came and actually worked with us. And then he went into the Pan Am games in Winnipeg and called me in there. So I worked for him there. And through there, I met a bunch of people that ended up in Sydney. So we finished the Pan Am games and went to Sydney on a vacation and uh, had an interview, which is another crazy story, had an interview for a job that I ended up accepting. But once I got to Sydney, I quit the first day that I had the job because the job was in spectator services and God bless Steve Mirabile because he totally let me move over to the look of the games uh, and do the job that I really wanted, which hadn't come available. And it was just kind of the way things went. Um, so that's how I ended up in Sydney two hours late for my first day of work. Cause I took the wrong bus. Cause my friend transposed the number of the bus, right? She said it was like a 72 and it was supposed to be a 27. First time in Sydney. I'm like, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> And then I quit when I got there. <laughs> well, well, kudos to Steve uh, for letting you out of that and getting over to look. Part two of my question, or my second part, is Cook Islands. What happens if you don't check your email? You're on holidays, you know, you're just sitting there on the islands, um, but you still check your email. You ever think about what, what would have what would have happened if you hadn't checked your email? You know, I've never actually considered that. That's a really good question. I think because we were keeping in touch with our families about Christmas and timings and flights and, and all of those things. But we, we literally may have checked them once a day or once every two days. And uh, even when, uh, I think it was actually Holly Rasmussen who had sent me the email, like, are you the Tanya Lebuick? And I just replied yes and went back to the beach. And I don't even know if it was the next day or two days later or whatever. I wasn't, uh, yeah, it just kind of all unfolded. I'm also a firm believer that when things like that happen, that that's the way it's supposed to happen. So that's, you know, God's winking at you or nudging you or something like that. So yeah, I know I've never considered not checking it. That's an interesting question. Okay. So you go from Brandon and Winnipeg down to Sydney, then you come to Salt Lake. It's a very different place. What do you think? Um, well, I did make a stop before I went to Sydney. I actually went to the Arctic Circle in Canada and did a set of, they're called the Arctic Winter Games. And so I went up there Actually, I went up there because I wanted to do a winter set of games. And I knew that if I could figure stuff out in the Arctic, I could probably figure it out in Salt Lake. So I had my eye on Salt Lake. So it was interesting when I got there, there was lots of familiar and friendly faces, lots of folks I knew around the place. And uh, I just, I thought it was extremely charming, actually. And I, I never, I'd been to lots of places and like anybody who's traveled around, I never felt unsafe in Salt Lake. Like I always felt like it was community and family driven, certainly clean, you know, uh, so that had that going for it. And I just found the people very engaging and kind and uh, it felt comfortable to me. So I've got to ask you, the Arctic Circle, it's got to be like crazy frigid up there. You come down here to Salt Lake, did you ever hear people complaining about the cold and you're thinking, this is nothing? Have you seen Brandon? Have you seen Winnipeg? <laughs> Have you seen above the Arctic Circle? That is true cold. It, it is true cold. It's crazy cold. Yep, it is. Working outside in it too is is a whole other 
kind of a challenge for sure. Um, I don't recall if anybody complained about uh, the, the cold in Salt Lake. I thought the weather was great. I loved the extreme temperatures, but the heat in the summer and the, uh, you know, the coldness in the, in the winter. Having, I like having four seasons. That's certainly one thing I learned uh, living on Australia is I like four seasons. Yep. So I think Salt Lake's got a great uh, weather, but I know I don't remember anybody complaining. I do remember a lot of people asking me how I lived where I lived. That's for sure. Well, four seasons are great. I'm not going to complain about four seasons. I also yeah. love four seasons, but I have to say there's something to be said about having the beach. And I have to say I've been to a few beaches, but um, the beaches in Sydney or in Australia, like the Whitsunday Islands is probably the most beautiful place I've ever been. Yeah. Stunning, stunning beaches. Okay, well, let's come back to Salt Lake. Okay. Why don't you describe for us your role here in Salt Lake City and uh, what you were responsible for? So in Salt Lake City, I was the project manager for the Look of the Games. So I worked uh, for Bob Finley. Uh, he was the director of the department. And my the best way, I think, to describe my job is I, I was tasked with taking the design that the design team did and, and making it a reality in the environment. So the operational delivery of the program. So everything from what is it, how do you build it, how do you put it in, who's going to put it in, how much are you going to pay them, how are you going to get it out, are you going to leave it as a legacy, all of those steps through um, with a team of people, obviously, never by myself. So that's my job is to, yeah, the operational delivery of the design program. So you weren't doing the actual design, but you're kind of managing all the moving parts. Yeah, that's a really good way to, to explain it. Yep. No, I I'm I am not a designer. I can I can confirm that one hundred percent. That is a difficult thing. Absolutely it is. And one thing that's quite challenging, I think, from a project management perspective is there are a lot of moving parts when it comes to look at the games. There are. There was somebody that came out of Vancouver, I think it was, that described it uh, as one of the, you know, the most surmountable tasks. Uh, project management wise, probably in the world uh, in terms of events, right? Because the other thing with look is that we're always last, right? Like if we're going on a wall, if we're going like wherever we're going, whatever we're doing, you know, logos on hockey pucks, well, you got to have the puck, right? So we're like the last piece of the puzzle, you know, most of the time. So that increases the challenge when it comes to time, because inevitably people run out of time or use all of their time to do their stuff. So we get kind of skinny on time sometimes. And uh, it causes us to be very creative. Um, yeah, and I think focused, right? It's good. It's a good challenge. I enjoy that very much, actually. Well, an additional challenge with the winter games is the weather. Did you face any weather-related issues when it came to look? You know, it's funny that you say that, because I was thinking uh, today about different things that happened. And of course having done multiple events, sometimes time you get confused between what was in what event kind of thing. But what happened in Salt Lake, because we had so many adhesives, which are window uh, clings, you know, those kinds of things. We had the entire cityscape program where there was, you know, all these different applications. We were very concerned about its ability to stick in cold temperatures because you need heat. Like lots of times they'll use a heat gun or you need something to warm up the surface for it to stick properly. So uh, Chris Dillsaver, who was our production manager, and I actually flew to Minneapolis and went to the 3M factory because they were one of the sponsors. And they took us through, it's an amazing facility, but they took us through all different kinds of things. And it was, <laughs> there was a scientist that we 
went into a freezer with and were sticking things and trying things and they had tried new things and they were developing things. And he looked like a scientist and he was a, a small, small man and he was a big brain and we had a great, great time. And we came out of there with uh, really good confidence in what they were uh, presenting for us to use and how to use them. So we could then go and find the right suppliers uh, locally if we could, but also understand the installation of it and what that was going to take and, and, sw- and then switching it out because vinyl lots of times um, becomes brittle in cold temperatures, right? So that was, that was a ton of fun actually. And when we left, they gave us the biggest box of 3M goodies I've ever seen in my life. I'm still using post-it notes, I'm pretty sure, uh, from that trip with Chris. Yeah. So those kinds of things were, were lots of fun and challenging, right? Because how are you going to make that work? Because window treatments, like decals like that, were a fairly large part of the program. Well, the cold is certainly one major factor. Another factor is wind. Did uh, any of the look elements suffer wind damage? Certainly in that storm the night before, you know, like up in in UOP, we actually had like riggers, guys that were inside the bleachers, um, like holding on to, to pieces of it and trying to tie it back together and stuff. So it didn't rip anymore. Right. So we lost, uh, we had, we were carrying a contingency, but we probably lost almost our entire contingency before the games even started. We had to use it all. Yeah. So we deployed, uh, we, I mean, there's so many things that were just, uh, yeah mutilated really by that wind and stuff. So, uh, yeah, so we deployed our crews and everybody else and everybody hit the ground running and we switched as much out as we could understanding sports schedules and those kinds of things of how much time we had, but yeah, we had next to nothing left by day one. So if anything else would have happened, we'd have been, well, making things up using sewing machines, I guess. I don't know what we would have done. Wow. You took it right to the edge. Sounds like (laughs) it was, is a little bit closer than I like to live, but, uh, but it worked for us, right? Like then we had great weather and, you know, it just went really well from there. Well, Tanya, at the outset that you, you mentioned that, uh, you came prepared, you had made some notes, you, you identified some things. So I, I want to make sure we capture all the items that are on your list. So, the look of the games always tries to come out at the end of the Olympics with having some firsts. Uh, they do, they try and, you know, have at least, I don't know what it is. I think it's 10 firsts. So no games has ever done that before. And so what Salt Lake did besides cityscape, which was a massive first, uh, they also did the back of bleacher project, which was the cladding of the back of the bleachers, uh, with mesh. And it had all the athlete imagery on it. And it was quite fantastic. Like when you would, you know, roll up to Deer Valley or even UOP and, you know, they were all architecturally lit and, and all those kinds of things. So that was a big first for us. And because of, of how everything kind of played out, there was nobody in our department to really take that. So I decided I would run that project as well. Right. So I took that on as kind of my baby. Um, and what happened was in December. Uh, so again, we're the last of the we're the last of the last to go in. So we can't put something on the back of a bleacher unless there's a bleacher. And what happened in December of uh, 2001 is that the sit down connection was the name of the company and they were the bleacher supplier and they went into receivership just after Christmas. So they were just, they were just done. 
So I remember Jerry Anderson calling me and telling me, and I was like, oh my goodness, like, what do we do now? Right. And then of course, because of September 11th, you know, steel and all those kinds of things were at a bit of a premium. So they were actually trying to get uh, pieces and seize things from the warehouses to try and fabricate pieces to make connections for them and understand what they had in stock and what could we get. And so that pushed us like right to the very, very edge of being able to get that done. But we did. And it was, uh, it was a great first. And it was a great example also of working uh, together with, with Jerry and his, and his crew for sure. Yeah. If we hadn't worked together, I don't think we would have achieved it by far. You mentioned September 11th there. And I remember speaking with you before about your, your journey yes. from where you were back to Salt Lake. And so maybe you can recount for us your uh, experience there with uh, September 11th. Sure. So oddly enough, I wasn't actually in the U.S. Uh, when September 11th occurred. I had come home for a couple of days uh, to visit my parents and I had driven my mom to work. And, and when I got home, I came in and my dad said, you know, a plane flew into the World Trade Center. And I was like, what? Like everybody else, I'm sure. Uh, my reaction was shock. And uh, so then, of course, started to watch everything unfold and didn't know what I was going to do because I was actually booked to fly September 12th. So the next day. So I was pretty sure I wasn't flying on the 12th. And then what happened was I was able to fly on the 14th. So not too much after that. And I, you know, I won't lie. It was, uh, it was not an easy flight to get on, right. You could just feel the anxiety from people all over the pilot and crew did a great job, but I could only get to Calgary because they weren't allowing flights across, uh, international borders yet. So I got to Calgary hoping that by the time I got to Calgary, they'd open the border and I could fly home but they hadn't. So I was bunking in on people's couches and friends of mine that lived there and going back and forth to the airport and trying to figure stuff out. And so I decided, well, I'll just drive. I'll just drive there. So I go to the car rental place. And of course, you know, 400 other people decided they were going to drive. So I get to the one car rental place and I ask, and, and he said, we have no cars. I'm like, you have no cars. And he said, none. And I said, okay. That's why I was just standing at the counter trying to figure out what on earth was my next move. And this guy walked up and handed in keys. And the guy said, oh, are you handing in a vehicle? And he said, yes, I am. I just drove here from Salt Lake. And I was stunned. I just remember standing there and looking at him. And I looked at the guy behind the counter and he looked at me because he knew I was heading to Salt Lake. And I went, that's my car. And he smiled and he said, that's your car. So in my car, I got and uh, drove unknowing how long I'd be hauled up at the border. But the travel department with uh, Salt Lake had gotten me on a flight in, out of Great Falls, Montana, which was around six hours, I think, from Calgary. So by the time I got to the border, and again, they booked me, but we had no idea how long I'd have to wait or whatever. And the only way I'd make the flight is if I could get across the border relatively quickly. But people were saying they were in line for hours and whatever. Of course, I had a visa. and I, I just assumed I would be held and questioned and all those kinds of things, right? Um, anyways, I got to the border. There was one car in front of me. Uh, they went through. I went up to the border crossing. And they asked me a couple questions, looked at my visa and said, 
uh, have a nice day. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And so I just hammered it through and I made my flight and uh, got back to Salt Lake that night. It's crazy. It was a crazy day and a half for sure. Took me a day and a half to get back. It's an incredible story. And I have to ask, what are the odds <laughs> that you just happened to go into the rental car facility at the same time that someone else is returning a car? Well, not only that, I happened to be at the the car rental place that he came to because there's, I mean, I don't know, there had to have been eight car rental companies maybe, right? And like, and I was just standing there dumbfounded with like, well, what am I going to do now? Am I going to buy a car and drive there? Like, is you know, I'm trying to think through my options. And up walks this guy who made my day. Okay, what other stories do you have on your list that we need to go over? There's one about Salt Lake Ice Center, if you like. There's one about sport equipment and doing... So sport equipment is a monster area for us. Like if you think of any... Uh, games like we even put decals on the back of the hockey net where the the goal cam is right so that when you know there's so much strategy and thought that goes into what goes where and how it goes and we had a chap named brian saunders who looked after that for us so you know a hockey puck is a great example of the work we do in terms of when we have to well, what kind of puck are they getting and can we get a sample of it Right. And then we got to figure out what's going to work and all those kinds of things. And then we have to get our hands on the pucks, which they don't just hand out to people. They're a protected thing. And then the, you know, the practice pucks versus the, uh, the game pucks and how many of them and how do you get them? Because of course they can't, they're a secure item. Right. So trying to figure out how to like when they arrive to when, who's going to get them and how are we going to get a decaler in there or whatever that is. And, and all those kinds of things. So Brian took care of all of that. And as well as broadcast and a bunch of other things we threw on his plate. So it's just a monster area for us. Lucky for Brian, he also had ice graphics. So Brian happened to be the guy managing the team of Canadian folks who were doing the ice graphics at the hockey venue who put the loony in the ice. So Brian got some gravy out of, uh, out of doing all of that coordination. So, you know, for look, there's just so many things we have to think of and so many things we have to consider right between the sport, the venue, logistics, like all those different kinds of things, not unlike other folks. And I think you and I talked about before that it's like air traffic control, right? You have all these things kind of flying in at once and, you know, what's coming first and second and how that makes sense. And somebody's got to land right now. And just trying to figure that out and keep everybody moving forward because you just don't have the time to wait, you know? So, uh, yeah, we had a great team that did a lot of really, really cool things for us. I'm glad you brought up the sport equipment. That's always a very interesting area, but you piqued my interest when you said Salt Lake Ice Center. So what was the deal with the Salt Lake Ice Center? So tight turnaround for that venue, right? Everybody, I think there was, I don't know, 36 hours or something like that, I think, right, to get in. So of course we're last. And so our, our Jana, Jana Linnell was there and, and overseeing the installation of the banners at the ends of, of the rink which are massive banners, right? I mean, in order to get them on camera, you know, all that and cover the end zone, right? So they're huge, huge banners. And she calls me and it's, I don't know what day it was. It might've been the second day they were in there. Not a lot of time left. And she called me and explained to me that one of the banners was backwards. 
and we couldn't figure out how to make it all work with the other banners. Like it just, it just wouldn't, right? Like, so we, in advance, I had had conversations with all of our suppliers, all of our installation crews, all of that, um, to tell them and ask them that, you know, the days before the games, we might have some crazy situations where we got to call on you and you got to help us. Like you're either in or you're not in kind of thing. And they were all agreed. And so we called these guys out of Canada and said, who'd made our banners and said, here's the situation. And they said, uh, if you can get us the art within, I don't know, however much time it was an hour or two or whatever, said, we'll do them tonight and then we'll, we'll overnight them. Right. And so then our production guy worked with, customs and the border and, and got them all expedited and in and everything. And, and we got them up in time, but you know, stuff like that happens and you're just like, okay, what's our next move. <laughs> right. So Jana did a great job. She, you know, it, it was actually our mistake uh, as to why it was backwards, but she fixed that real quick and got that out the door and, and they totally delivered for us. Yeah. We had great suppliers. I mean, we even had one that I brought out of Sydney that I had worked with at the triathlon venue. So a bunch of Aussies we transported over here to do our general labor because, you know, installing things like fence fabric and, and all that kind of stuff is hard to find a team of people, one who have experience and two who want to do it in sub-zero temperatures. Um, and so sold out events, uh, came from Sydney, uh, with Wayne Staunton was his name and they did a great job for us. So yeah. Interesting things that all things are connected, I think, in some ways. It sounds to me like you had a wonderfully busy, exhausting time during the games. Then you have to transition to Paralympic Games. Uh, any challenges there in that transition period? You know, winter's a bit different, right? There's just there's not as many Paralympic venues as there are like in a summer transition. So we had, we had been planning and preparing for that. And, and once we're in, like once the game start into week one, we get a bit of downtime and then we start planning for that transition. So there was nothing really that hung us up. We had, we were well prepared for that. And by then, you know, everybody had been through the fire and uh, yeah, kind of come up through it. Uh, and then they were just, it was easy for them in, in a lot of respects because now they've done it. Right. So once you've done it, it looks completely different and, and things that you might, think are going to sink you or are just everyday occurrences in the event world and you just keep going. So, yeah, no, we didn't have much, uh, much trouble at all with Paralympics. Actually, it was a, it was a pretty good seamless transition for us. My boss, Bob Finley, as a gift to me, had invited me to the women's gold medal match. Um, and <laughs> I'd never been to a box before. It was in this lock box at, at the uh, at the arena, and so uh, pretty overwhelming for me, right? To, I'm like, I don't know where I am. What's all going on? And so I go into the box, and and you know, kind of there's food and all those kinds of things, and a really new experience for me. And and I realize as I look around, there's lots of people in there, and they have uh, like earpieces and stuff. And I'm like, huh, wonder what's going on. I'm like, but of course, every with all the security and stuff, I. And I didn't really think too much about it. And so you're walking around, there's a lady standing there. And of course, you look at the credential. And uh, her, her name is Mary. And she, her credential is the White House. So I'm chatting with her. And I said, oh, what do you do at the White House, Mary? And her face got a very perplexed look on it. And just over my right shoulder, you hear Bob say, yeah. 
she's from Canada, like that. And I, I kind of went, what? And then I looked again at Mary's credential that said Mary Cheney uh, with the White House. So the daughter of Dick Cheney. And I was like, oh boy, yes, I am very sorry. Uh, she was really good about it all. And then we actually sat together and watched the game, which Canada won. But I, I laugh to this day. I can always hear Bob go, yeah, she's from Canada. <laughs> like she has That's no great. idea what's going on. Yeah, it was good. I was like, oh boy, pay more attention. Well, you got the last laugh because Canada won the gold, right? Yeah, it was good. And she was good about it. I mean, yeah, I'm sure she doesn't expect everybody to know who she is. But I just read the last name for heaven's sake, you know, but I didn't. And yeah, it was good. It was a good moment. Well, the games end. Uh, life goes on. What was next in store for Tanya? And what was something that you learned while working there in Salt Lake that helped you in the, the future events or other things that you did throughout your career? You know, Salt Lake was the culmination of a bunch of things for me. I think if I learned anything, um, certainly the tenacity uh, served me well and that I could lead a team, that I could lead a team. And then I went on to do other things like that. And it certainly gave me a lot of confidence and um, skill. You know, like you're just in the middle of it, right? And you just you just figure it out and keep going. And just, you know, it was the first time I had worked and lived in the United States. And of course, growing up in Canada, you're our neighbor and we get a lot of your TV and news and all those kinds of things. So we have a certain perception of you, you know, and I'd, I'd had some, uh, I'd worked with some Americans like Trisha Fenton and uh, Derek Salisbury and some Christine Paul, some of those folks before, but I never had the opportunity to kind of be immersed in your culture. And I got to tell you, I liked it. I liked it a lot. So I think tenacity that I could lead things and maybe ultimately to have a goal, right? Like, you know, when I met, when I met Guy and in 1995, 1995 and decided that I wanted his job, you know, six years later I had it. So I think it's good to set a goal. It's really good to achieve it, but it's really good to set a goal. Well, those are excellent learnings and I appreciate you sharing those with us. We typically end our podcast with uh, three assignments, a song, a restaurant and a goosebump moment. But before we get to those assignments, yeah. I want to make sure we've got everything on your list. Is there anything else on your list that we need to cover before we get to our final assignments? So it's all like we had a very interesting and unique team of people, I would say. And we, we came together marvelously. And I would just like to do a shout out for Pam Jessup, who's a big part of our team and died very suddenly last year. And the experience of Salt Lake is so hard to explain to people, I think, that weren't there. Because, you know, almost 20 years later, Pam passes away and like fire through our team. The message is spread, right, that, that she has passed and, and just, you know, in a very short period of time, we were all together again, right? She was the first one of our team who's passed away. 
And I think the connectedness is a testament to what really happened in Salt Lake. A great set of games. I mean, fabulous community, all of those things. But I think even beyond that, it is what happened among us that worked there, right? And that I'm certainly not an athlete, but I think we're all Olympians. Tough to talk about her, man. But good. She deserves that shout out. She worked really hard. Well, thank you so much for such a beautiful and heartfelt tribute to her and by extension to a family that gets developed in these events. You know, uh, I think every edition of an event uh, develops that. But there was for me, and I, I know I'm biased because I'm from here, but there was for me something special about the family that we created. Yeah. And for me, that's perhaps the most important legacy of those games or the relationships that were forged uh, at that time. So thank you so much for sharing those. I 100% agree with you. Yeah, that's the best part of the games for me. Yeah, for me too, for me too. All right, Tanya. We'll, re- we'll gather ourselves back together again here. Oh, um, I tell and, and we'll uh, we'll put a bow on this uh, wonderful conversation. Uh, <laughs> Sounds good. Our first assignment had to do with music, a song that or a group that you listened to uh, back in those days that if you hear the music today, it reminds you instantly of Salt Lake 2002. Uh, for me, the song that immediately reminds me of Salt Lake 2002 is Mary Charp- Chapin Carpenter's Almost Home. We had gone to Vegas, a few of us, and we were driving back, which is a great drive. And it was uh, fall. And uh, Brian Saunders was driving and he put in some music and he had Mary Chapin Carpenter and we were almost home. Like we were just kind of, you know, you, how you come up and you're seeing the mountains and all that. And, and that song, and that for me nails it every time. Every time that song just makes me think of Salt Lake and smile for sure. Fantastic. Mary Chapin Carpenter, Almost Home. We'll definitely put that on our Spotify playlist and all of the songs that everybody has nominated are found on that list. Uh, my next question for you is about food. So was there a particular restaurant or a bar that you like to frequent uh, when you were living there in Salt Lake City? What have you heard that I like to frequent bars? No, I'm kidding. Um, Ruth Diner is probably, uh, it was a key for me. My friend Kevin and I used to go there quite a bit and have uh, breakfast. That's one of my favorite things to do is go out for breakfast. And I think it's a great kitschy place and a, and a nice uh, location. And I made sure everybody who came to visit me, I took to Ruth Steiner for sure. So that's a key one for me. Oh, I think it's an excellent choice. Like you, I'm a breakfast fanatic and I will gladly have breakfast yeah. any time of day or night. And Ruth Steiner is a great place to go have breakfast. So I will happily add that to our map. Right on. All the restaurants that have been nominated, I've pinned on our map. So hopefully when this pandemic abates, we can all, uh, and yeah. when people come back to Salt Lake, maybe for a 20 year anniversary or something, who knows, uh, we can all go to some oh, of these restaurants that uh, people have nominated. So Roots is still Yes, open? it is. Uh, up uh, Immigration Canyon. It is still there. I went there earlier this year. And so uh, at least, well, no, I guess it was late last year because it was before the winter. So I guess it was autumn of 2019 was the last time that I went up there, but I'm pretty sure it's still around. 
Okay, you've already shared some really touching moments, but is there a particular time either before or during the games um, that whenever you think back on it, it just gives you that really warm, fuzzy feeling? I think there's probably lots of goosebump moments in Salt Lake, but for me, one that stands out certainly is, um, I think it was in November of 2001, um, I went to a concert and I had the pleasure of uh, working with quite a few people I'd worked with before and a fan favorite for us is U2 and U2 had come to Salt Lake and so we had tickets and, and we went to the U2 concert. We um, Prior to the U2 concert, we went to our friend David Jukes and he made lots of uh, martinis and apple teenies and we had a great time and everybody headed to the concert together and the concert was great you know packed packed house and and everything and then I don't recall them doing an encore but I do uh, distinctly remember at the end you knew it was coming to an end because of the time they played and and things like that and then the arena went dark completely dark and there was just lights on the band on the stage and then a screen behind them lit up and they they started to play Walk On. I don't know if you know U2 songs, but they started to play Walk On and, and behind them started to reel all the names of all the people who had perished on 9-11. So name after name after name. And a silence and a stillness fell in that arena that I, you can just feel to this day having been there. And it was almost like the air got heavier to breathe, right? And and nobody tried to leave early. Everybody just stood and watched as all the names and they played. And then the song ended and the lights on the stage went out and you could just see the screen and just more names, right? That the names exceeded the length of the song. And I think that was um, super impactful for people to kind of come to terms with how many names, right? And in the, the stillness of that, that stayed, you could just hear sobbing, deep, deep sobbing and crying from people in the uh, arena. And you just knew somebody was looking for a name on that screen, right? Um, and so another kind of shared experience and, and every, nobody left, everybody waited till the last name. And then people, very sobering experience, obviously. And people just quietly left. And, you know, the, the kind of experience, I guess, that is difficult um, in the moment, but you're really grateful for it, you know, at the end of it, right? Yeah, it's a beautiful, um, bittersweet memory. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I, I love that album, All That You Can't Leave Behind by U2. And Beautiful Day is the opening song on that album. And a lot of people have mentioned Beautiful Day as one of their favorite songs right. from that period. So um, thank you very much for mentioning U2 and Walk On. Um, yeah, one of my favorites. You know, I've been asked, I think by you and, uh, and, and other people, how long am I going to do this? And I have to say, as long as I can have conversations like we just had, I will do it as long as I can, because um, that was a very, very uplifting and inspiring uh, set of stories and messages that you shared today, Tanya. Oh so gosh. thank you. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you. <laughs> well, that's very, very kind. If people want to reconnect with you on social media or other ways, what's the best way for them to do that? The more the merrier, I say. So please come and find me. I am on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn. 
Uh, I think I have an Instagram account, but I wouldn't try and find me there. And you can reach me at Tanya, so T-A-N-Y-A, at Labuick, L-A-B as in Bob, U-I-C-K dot C-O, um, is that way, or just spell that name and you'll find me on the social media as well. I'd love to connect with anybody who's interested. I think it's, you know, certainly uh, the best time of my life, hands down. Well, Tanya, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming and uh, spending the time with us. And I wish you all the very best in all the many things that you're doing. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. And once again, Tanya, thank you. Thank you very much, Christian. You have a great night.